A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. As an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold, so is a wise reprover upon an obedient ear. As the cold of snow in the time of harvest, so is a faithful messenger to them that send him. For he refresheth the soul of his masters. And welcome everyone, this is A Word Fitly Spoken, a very special episode, episode fitty, and we got the whole band together. Willie Grills here. Guys, go ahead and introduce yourselves. You should be familiar to the audience. Zell and Heidi, our usual host here. Adam Kuntz, sometime guest. David Appled. I'm in Kentucky. <laughs> Aaron Upoff. And I am the 11th hour guest. Yeah. Well, welcome, guys. Brought the whole crew together. We want to do a different episode instead of just tackling, uh, you know, one subject and beating it into the ground that, like we usually do. We're going for a smorgasbord here. We're going to answer a lot of user questions or listener questions, I should say, and just see where we go from there. You'll get a bit of a flavor for Word Fitly Spoken. Really, this might be a good first podcast if you want to share it with your friends, family, and coworkers, pets, and other community religious leaders. So, guys, how is everyone? Time now for our most gratuitous weather posting of all time. Gentlemen? It's bad. In, it's, it's bad in Paducah. The river, the Ohio River is swollen, and the flood walls are in. Supposed to get a big rainstorm tomorrow. We're expecting some flooding. Hmm. That's not good. It's the highest it's been at this point in the year since 2011. Hmm. Well, that'll keep the energy up. Thanks for that, David. Yep. Yep. <laughs> no, it'll all be all right. We got we no. Got we'll a good flood wall. Yeah. Thoughts and prayers, bro. Thoughts and prayers. Prayers ascend. Think of for, yes. for Paducah. Adam, how are things in the Commonwealth? Well, you know they're good. They always are. Snowed a couple days ago. Cleared that off. Real nice now. Real sunny. It was my son's birthday today. Good times. Wholesome. Love it. Yeah. Aaron, how are things on the set of The Sopranos? <laughs> They're great. We had a little bit of snow. The same snow that went through Pennsylvania hit us too, but it warmed up enough yesterday to where much of it melted. Now I'm just waiting for spring to get here. Very good. And Zelwyn? I think we're supposed to hit 20 below tonight. Well, <laughs> <laughs> the nukes are safe. <laughs> so it's usual for this time of year in this part of the world. Cold and not a lot of snow recently, but it you just keep moving on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or standing if you could ever find yourself truly happy, be patient. This too shall pass. <laughs> North Dakota's motto. Zellin's license plate is a vanity plate that says resignation. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we dive into questions, let's talk a little bit about the genesis of Word Fitly Spoken, namely why we do it. What is our manifesto? What are we about? Everybody here has been a part of Word Fitly Spoken since its inception. We started out as a blog 10 years after blogs weren't popular. And <laughs> well, we are, we are Lutherans. <laughs> right. Yeah, we are. Yeah. Exactly. We'll, we'll be podcasting about the emergent church in the next two to three years. <laughs> it's a real problem. I, a I'm, real I'm problem. pretty upset about Billy Graham crusades personally. So I'm going to be <laughs> I'm battling the charismatic yeah, revival. But, <laughs> right. The Toronto blessing, the holy laughter. We must, <laughs> we must stop yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, that Todd Bentley character. I think I might have finally cracked it, too. I've got the right <laughs> Bible verse. Right. So, guys, what what are we about? What are we, what are we trying to do here? 
I think that not least we are trying to make the Bible the actual center of life and practice for especially Lutherans in the United States, rather than its frequent position as kind of someone who is presumed upon. The, the, Bible, the Bible often functions for many Lutherans as kind of the, the, the person at church who quietly does everything and holds everything together, but is never recognized. And a lot of people don't even know that person's name. We're, we're trying to make the Bible more than, more than just a quiet guest within the church. Well said. Well said. And we want you to learn about Leah. We really do. But it's all a dog whistle. This is how we get our exegesis in. So we have to learn about the Bible you know, in this way, through the men who came before us, which is good. How did they use it? And why did they put it front and center? And it is markedly you know, different. If we look at Gerberding in those episodes, for example, why was it important to read Gerberding? Because he stressed these very practical things like dedicate, like the pastor, for example, dedicating his morning to the study of the Bible and the reading of the actual biblical text, which you think would not be a temptation for the pastor, but oftentimes that becomes a neglected thing. And it can for any of us. We can confuse often anything spiritual as a substitute for the scripture, when in fact it ends up replacing it, and it's a and it's not a worthwhile substitute. Go go back to to Adam's analogy there of the the person at church who quietly does everything, and then uh, just just imagine that that person eventually dies at some point, and suddenly people are looking around and saying, "What hap- How come? How come the basement floor?" is not swept anymore? How come nobody took care of the bulletins? Well, because the person who used to do all those things is no longer in the building, right? And we want to do everything that we can to avoid that from happening. But I think that a lot of times the the issues that we face, if we're not connected back to the scriptures, we're going to end up being like that, you know, looking around saying, how, how do we solve these problems? Oh, it's in the Bible. <laughs> that's That's got to be the, the solution. And even our strictly historical episodes where we deal with, you know, this figure or that figure or whatever the case may be, are not just purely for the, you know, historical interest. But if we understand, you know, where we are and why we've got to where we are, then we are able to actually apply the Bible in an effective way. Because with understanding of where we are in time comes a better appreciation for how the Bible speaks to those situations. So, yeah, absolutely. When we're talking about pastoral theology, as as we have in in many episodes, or historical theology, any of those subjects, the the insight there pertinent to the Bible is that because the Bible is the Spirit's words given to men for their salvation, we we don't have to make the Bible relevant. The history of the church, and the history of pastoral practice, the history of the life of the church, is the history of how the church has or has not had the Spirit's words applied to it powerfully, such that the Bible doesn't have to become relevant. It already is. We may be simply living in a state of ignorance in which we believe it is irrelevant or difficult of understanding. But like the salvation of Christ to somebody who doesn't know Christ, that salvation and and that revelation in, in the scriptures, those are already desperately relevant to every single human being on the face of the earth. The church's task is to make us more and more aware of that. And that's what we're trying to spur on here. That being said, 
what are some practical ways in which we can spur that on? I mean, not us as a podcast, but but the listeners, what can they do? Just read it, first of all. And I know that that almost sounds obvious, but at the same time, Satan comes in and gives us so many excuses to put off reading the Bible on a regular basis. And even if we're in the habit of reading on a regular basis, you know, we'll come up with saying, oh, well, I need to do this first, or I need to do this first, or I need to, you know, do all these things until you basically push the Bible completely out of your your daily activities. And so the first step would just be, yeah, just to pick it up and do it. I think reading in what the fathers called a cursory fashion, which meant entire portions of books or entire books at a time, not not even just a chapter a day, still less, you know, a couple verses a day. And the reason for that is that when you're reading in that manner, when you're reading whole books at a time, that breaks up the kind of the the crust of ice that I think easily forms within a person about, well, well, this is the only way to think about this, or or you haven't thought about this or that thing, or you haven't examined this or that part of yourself in a long time. And when you're taking in a significant portion of God's word at a time, it really messes with you in a really fruitful, helpful, sometimes crushing way. And so that when you're doing that, that is actually a massive source of power in your life for both repentance and for the pursuit of holiness. That That's also the power behind the church's proclamation. So it does sound obvious, but you can tell from the life of the church whether or not it's actually happening. I would also add to let the text stand on its own. Let the text say what it says. Don't let the Bible become like some kind of magic codex or some kind of grimoire where you're just looking for some, you know, tricks and hidden things and, and, you know, you're reading it kind of as an esoteric book. But rather, let the Bible say what it says and believe what it says. We can be tempted into reading the Bible, I would say, thematically, and sometimes that's to our detriment. We can read it only topically. But we're talking about just an actual taking in of the text itself, learning just what that is, which is easier said than done. There is an art to it as well, but there are also some really boneheaded ways to approach the reading and (laughs) preaching of Scripture. I want to let David and Aaron chip in here too, but before we get too far, I just want to say something that I found very helpful when reading the Bible and reading in this cursory way that Adam is talking about is when you get to the end of like a certain amount of scripture to actually pray, but to pray in a way that reflects on what you have just read. And I find that to be extremely helpful because it it internalizes it and it also allows you to reflect deeper and to kind of chew on it, as it were, instead of just kind of rushing through it. But David, go ahead. The value of doing this, what what we're talking about here is that you you know you might have some particular problem that you're looking okay what's what does the bible say about loneliness or what does the bible say about you know forgiveness what whatever the thing is that like gets you in the door when you read a large section you find out that what your concern is may not be the the thing that that actually you you need to hear at that moment and so as you read your your mind is taken in a place that you that you weren't originally looking for. And that's, it's hugely beneficial. And it, and it may be that, you know, what, what your immediate need is does get met, but it may also be that why you picked up the Bible and read at that moment doesn't really get resolved till a month later. 
as you're going through an entire book at a time, you find it opens up into wider vistas than what you had even begun to look for at the beginning. Good stuff. Aaron, any comments? Yeah, I think some one of the things I've met before talking with people about reading the Bible is is just discouragement that they can't really retain a lot of it. Like they'll read a book, maybe it's just one of the epistles or something and and a lot of the doctrinal things that Paul is talking about is are over their heads and and they just sort of get discouraged that it's not something that they can really give you a summary of afterwards. And I think one of the solutions is for just to not have such high expectations of yourself when you go into reading it. Not that you don't try and actively pay attention and learn so- stuff and pay attention to it and take it in, but that you just don't, you don't go thinking, I've got to remember, you know, the the outline of Romans, you know, reading this right through and memorize 17 verses every day or something like that. I mean, that's just going to demotivate you from the start. So with that being said, then, do you guys have a reading plan that you advocate or do you have a ritual associated with your own Bible reading? Consistency above all, and just kind of from one end of the Bible to the other. I mean, I tend to read out of both the Old Testament and the New Testament each day, but that's not like by any means an inspired way to read the Bible. It's just how I find it to be the most beneficial. Sometimes you could read certain kinds of books together. I know that's a a certainly beneficial practice for some, like read the prophetic books of the Old Testament while you're reading Revelation or something like that. That can be very helpful. Yeah, and so you're getting a yeah you're getting a taste of the, of the whole thing. Yeah, I do more or less what Zelwyn does, but also I I change translations. Like I'm working through the ESV now. Before that, I did the uh, New King James version, and after that, probably the King James version just to make Willie happy. But I think it's good to familiarize yourself with. Well, translations were my next question, so go on. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I'm just giving you this, you know, so you can set you up for it later. So, but no, yeah, I mean, because like the, there are uh, several good English translations, and I think you know what's the harm in reading through one? I think I have the the Revised Standard Version on my shelf, which isn't really commonly used anymore, but why not? Adam, you want to jump in and signal for the ASV right now? Or Yeah, I do, I do still use the American Standard Version, which is from, I guess it's 118 years old this year. <laughs> Adam was born in 1918. Indeed I was, yeah. Yeah, C.P. Croth and I went to seminary together. <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't convince him to join up. I could not. I, I use the ASV, which is the the father to the New American Standard which I also use. Those are those are probably the two that I use most frequently. I also like the New King James because Missouri Synod, I also read the ESV at least once a year. But I try to, each time I read through the Bible, I try to change the translation. So I do a couple different ones each year. Some I never come back to. You know, I think once I got through the NIV, I was done. It, it's It's also interesting because you realize that depending on what translation you're reading or hearing regularly, some things are going to seem really obvious to you because they are very forcefully or well stated by the translator. I don't say necessarily that it's a good translation, but you can tell what the translator was invested in. And that, and that really does affect your perception of things. Even, even let's say you were doing the New King James, well, they're trying to retain the rhythms of the King James Bible. You're probably more amenable to the past, to the, the history of the church, than if you're using the New Living Translation on a daily basis. So, But yeah, as far as, as, far as reading, I think I do roughly what, roughly what Zelwyn described. I try to read groups of books together, or I'll read you know, kind of lines of influence. I'll, I'll do... Matthew, James, and Jude in a weekend, or 
or Mark and then Peter's letters, something like that, all together. Unlike all of you, I actually grew up in the Missouri Synod. And, um, <laughs> and so I. <laughs> Are we not sons of Abraham? I bore the heat of the day. <laughs> I can remember that the NIV was the translation yeah, when I yeah. was a kid that was used in worship, but I, I don't read the NIV myself. I just read ESV. I, I like the chronological, you know, there's reading plans. There's all kinds of reading plans. I like the ones that are chronological. So you're going through, you know, when while you're reading Second Kings, you're also in Jeremiah, you're in Ezekiel. I, that's my personal preference. I like, it gives you this, the the flow of salvation history, but any any reading plan i think is a good one well all right well we're at our first break we'll be right back with more word fitly spoken a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy one is understanding the word front and center, in doctrine, in history, in life. That's the mission of A Word Fitly Spoken. We've got more on the way. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. We are back. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. The gang's all here. Willie Grill, Zell and Heidi, Adam Kuntz, David Appleden, A.A. Ron, up off of New Jersey. We're here talking anything and everything on the 50th episode of A Word Fitly Spoken. All right, we got listener questions coming up, those who check out Word Fitly posting and, and other places. So the first question has to do with the discipline of fasting. Um, do you guys care to comment on the discipline, ought we do it? If so, how should we do it? Zelwyn, why don't you take that one? Yeah, no, the, the discipline of fasting is definitely something that Christ presents as being something that we should do. I mean, it's 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 kind of like when he says, when you pray, you know, and not saying like if we pray, but when you pray. And he also says, when you fast, you know, do not disfigure your faces. So the question becomes, what is the reason why we do it, not whether or not we should do it? So, well, let's just start with this then. What is fasting? Because we get a couple of our definitions probably kind of confused because we have two related things going on. There's fasting, and then there's actually simply abstaining from certain things. So biblically, we're going to say that fasting is more about actually not taking food in general than it is avoiding certain foods when we're talking about it as a spiritual discipline, right? And then it sort of has developed into this custom we have, say, in Lent, where you're going to give up a certain item or a certain hobby or habit for the season, that kind of thing. But biblical fasting probably, and ancient fasting really, is probably a little bit more intense than that kind of thing. Giving up donuts for 40 days kind of pales in comparison to, say, the great fasts of the of the early church and certainly the fasts of our Lord. <laughs> Aaron, any any words on fasting? 
Sure. I mean, when I fasted before, it's always been since I've become a Lutheran and it's, it's for just the reason of like, it's easy just to, as an American in the 21st century, just to have everything at your fingertips, you can buy and consume whatever. And you really, even if you're not rich, you don't lack for too much. You don't want for too much. That is, you don't, you have no lack. And so to just to take a time, usually during Lent, often during Holy Week, just to put away eating for a while. When my younger and more ambitious days, there was one site I fasted between the Maundy Thursday service and Easter Sunday morning. And I think I did that only once. And now that I'm, you know, a pastor, I can't really do that and like have the energy to do the services. But no, just putting something away to, to remind yourself that man does not live on bread alone and that everything that we do have comes from the Lord. You know, one of the formerly very common practices, but something that's fallen out of way in a lot of Lutheranism, was the Christian practice of fasting the day you receive the sacrament, you know, or until you receive the sacrament, rather. So for us, that would look like basically skipping breakfast on Sunday morning. You know, these small disciplines are, are good ways to simply cultivate spiritual disciplines. What's the purpose of fasting? Like you say, we've got Aaron, you said, you know, to remind us that we don't live by bread alone. There's a there's a purity to it and kind of a cleansing aspect to fasting, like with all spiritual disciplines. And, you know, fasting just comes to be kind of neglected, especially because for many Christians throughout history, it was imposed upon them. But even then, that might be a little bit of a cop-out. I'm not sure. If you go along that route, Willie, if you if you look at, say, the example of what Jesus says to the apostles when they, they couldn't drive out the demon of the, I think it was a, a man's son who had a demon and the apostles couldn't drive it out. It's Mark 9. I don't know where it is in the other gospels, but he says, you can't drive this out except by prayer and fasting. The point is when you fast, you don't, you're not doing anything, right? And so the, the connection between fasting and prayer is one that we would want to preserve. So you you fast and you pray for very similar reasons. Yeah, which you is... sure that wasn't prayer and holy water, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> cue the exorcist. Yeah, the the point is that you learn to depend more and more on God, or to the subjective feeling of that, right? Because it's true no matter what. But like Aaron was saying a minute ago, because we are capable of providing so much for ourselves. It's easy to forget that. And fasting is a very practical way that you remind yourself that I'm not I'm, I'm not self-sufficient. Hey, we might tackle this in an episode in the near future, too. You never know. It's Lent right now, worth taking a look at. All right, so the next thing is going to be the role of deacon in the history of the church. Now, that's that's a big question. What are deacons? How have they changed over time? Adam, I'm going to throw that one out to you. I think that the Tennessee Synod was really on to something when they said that polity, as outlined in Scripture, is there for a reason that it benefits the church. And I think that the way that they were practicing a kind of twofold office of the ministry in that way was the closest thing that you get to what is actually happening in Acts and the pastoral epistles. There, the deacons are definitely not necessarily doing everything that an apostle might do. And we don't see the word deacon in association with the oversight of churches like the the Ephesian elders or the word bishop as used in the pastoral epistles or overseer, whatever you however you want to translate that. But the office of deacon as portrayed in the pastoral epistles has 
pretty much the same qualifications as Bishop. And there's some sense that if he does well in this office, he will he will prove himself to some end, potentially promotion. And that seems to be what the Tennessee Synod did, where you would be a deacon and you would preach and catechize and baptize and then be promoted to the fullness of the office of the ministry, including oversight of Holy Communion, if you proved yourself faithful as a deacon. That's very different from what happened in most of Christian history, and that has to do with a lot of developments, including the rise of a geographically diffuse oversight by somebody called a bishop who generally lives in a city and then has priests underneath him. And then there's also deacons who have a variety of roles. So that that term is really kind of shed abroad throughout Christian history and usually doesn't occupy necessarily the same ministry of preaching that you actually find, for instance, Philip or Stephen doing in the book of Acts. It's a role that every church nowadays seems to have defined differently, although throughout church history you certainly seem to have a more consistent pattern. Why do we at times turn a blind eye to what Scripture says about polity? Can can history be prescriptive is the question. I think that when it's phrased that way, especially the word prescriptive, that gets people's hackles up because they— they remember a hermeneutical principle, which in a way is helpful that just because something is narrated in Scripture doesn't mean that we should do it. And that certainly makes sense in terms of, you know, David's adultery. Right. Ananias and Sapphira's financial practices. Right, exactly. <laughs> Simon right. the magician's simony. Right. Yeah. But if the church if the church is filled with the Holy Spirit and is doing something, we should at least you know, consider, well, why are they doing it this way? Or why are these offices mentioned in the pastoral epistles? So I think when you think about it that way, instead of thinking about the script, instead of thinking about, well, well, what can I get out of? Or what what is too unclear for me to care about anymore? It is helpful to discern, well, what does scripture lay out? And it lays out personal qualifications for at least two offices called bishop or overseer, and then deacon or servant, And those two offices look much the same, although it's definitely the case that the overseer oversees the whole household of God, similar to the father of a family, and that holistic oversight is not given to the deacon. Okay, that that's going to be the the confusing thing for a lot of people is that's just different from how it worked out historically with those very same words. So some people look at what's usually thought of as the threefold office of the ministry, as you find it in the Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox or assorted Anglican communions. You have bishops, priests, and deacons, and you have permanent deacons and transitional deacons. That's its own historical development. That is That order is not divinely mandated, and the Lutheran confessions are right to say that it's not. However, you do have a sense that there are at least two offices of the ministry that are Within, under, let's say, in Lutheran terms, one office, there are two grades within that one office, operative in the pastoral epistles and operative also in the Acts of the Apostles. And they are building one another up and carrying on ministry together, especially the proclamation of God's word. Yeah, so maybe maybe to answer the question, you know, should we have an office of deacon within like our own church body? 
I think, as you rightly point out, Adam, we have to first divorce it from all of this historical baggage that comes with it so that we're not just trying to be seeing as like repristinating in some negative way or trying to bring in some foreign concept. But yeah, like you say, to actually engage the scriptures about what they say about, you know, this twofold office or whatever that might be, and then see how we could apply that in our own situation. Right. And I think I think it's it's a case where historical baggage is its own fetish for classes of people who believe that they they absolutely oppose one another. So somebody somebody who doesn't want to use the term deacon or use the term bishop because it's because it's Catholic is just as beholden to history rather than scripture as somebody is who wants to introduce a term simply because it's because it's old. You know, you just you just mm-hmm, want right. bishops right. in special clothing because that has happened in the past. In that case, you have to recognize what Cyprian says when he's talking about church order, and he talks about the antiquity of error. It is possible for lies to be nearly as old as the truth is, which is why we always go back to the the the, the pure, clear fountain of Israel, which is the scriptures. And the scriptures do reveal a certain order to church life in the New Testament, which which I don't believe the the, the Spirit recorded for us accidentally. Well, I can't top that answer. If you got more... Just email Adam. <laughs> Let me put one more thing in here. You asked why we don't have them, or I can't remember exactly what your question was, but I think part of the issue is we, we want to say these things are contingent, right? The the office of deacon came about because of this historical oddity, right? It wasn't there from the beginning. It wasn't given by Christ himself. And so therefore, it, it just arose at the time and can therefore be gone when the times change. And I think that what I hear Adam kind of pointing out is if the spirit is guiding the history of the church, not that everything that is decided or everything done is infallible, but these contingencies are not just, you know, just the random occurrence of life in the first century. You know, there is something about that, the need that arises in Acts 6 that continues to be present in our times. And it's worth exploring. If you if you think of the office of the ministry as a continuation of the apostolic office, which is specifically stated in the Lutheran confessions and also borne out from how the apostles have elders appointed in every city. If you think of it that way, then the fact that that office exhibits a certain kind of order in the apostolic scriptures themselves should have some kind of bearing on how you think the office should be ordered in the same sense that deacons are there alongside the overseer or elder, overseer and and elder being equivalent terms as Jerome identified. In addition to that, there's also moral qualifications. There are also intellectual qualifications, the kinds of things that we've been talking about in the pastoral theology episodes. None of those things is fruitfully set aside by the church including the notion of a deacon, a kind of person who is working in the office alongside the overseer or elder, that is very helpful and fruitful when the the weight of a ministry is not borne entirely by one man. I, I, I don't see how that is not helpful. If it's helpful to talk to brother pastors, I think it's also helpful to have someone who is in the same work with whom you can collaborate. Yeah. The judges alongside of Moses, you know, his father-in-law telling him, you're killing yourself. Right. I mean, it's, 
It's not yeah. the same thing, but it's 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 an equivalent idea. Well, we could even throw Jonathan, I suppose, but that's that's more civil with David. But you know, <laughs> principle still stands, though. Well, that was good. Okay, all right. Now we've got a fun one. I know that everybody has been wanting to answer this user question: the Semper Virgo, the perpetual virginity of Mary. The question was posed: Why have Lutherans tended to disbelieve this or neglect this doctrine when it was held by most of our forefathers and most non-Lutheran forefathers? I'm rephrasing it a little bit, but there's a large historic precedent for Semper Virgo. <laughs> so what do? <laughs> I have never cared about this question. <laughs> in, in living in a time when lawlessness has increased and the love of many has grown cold, it just it, it's always seemed kind of irrelevant, especially given that as we all know, Peeper makes room for for both sides. Uh, you know, one of our obvious authorities uh, is Missouri Synod Lutherans. That it just it just doesn't doesn't matter as much in an age when the church is undergoing, the, you know, the present demographic crisis and what how that's going to play out. I just I've never thought about it. So Aaron routinely invokes the patron saint Philip Melanchthon, who spoke of the <laughs> of the rabies of the theologians at the end of his life. You're pointing out with like Philip Melanchthon and like coming all the way down through Calvin and through Francis Pieper. I mean, it is a an opinion that is held very widely. I mean, the the idea behind it is, I think, that by showing a great respect towards Mary, or at least what we consider to be a great respect towards Mary, we are thereby showing a greater respect towards her son, his uniqueness, his that he was the only one ever born from her. I think that's the driving motion. To me, that it, that just sounds like a theological rationalization of something that existed originally for a different reason, in that the affirmation of the perpetual virginity of Mary is related to the exaltation of virginity, I think, in an unbiblical manner in the early church, such that Mary is the model for perpetual monasticism. And the idea that she did not bear other children, not James, not Jude, not anybody else. And then the, the reasoning that somehow brother, you know, means cousin, generally, if you're speaking of James or, or Jude or anyone else, that, that is all for the sake of the project of monasticism as the highest form of Christian life. And, and so to, to, to take it, to take it out of that context and say, well, this is, this is just an affirmation of the uniqueness of Christ or something. I, I have trouble buying it because of its historical origins. Well, you're presupposing that monasticism isn't the most superior way. Indeed. Yes, sir. <laughs> so, yes, sir. I am. Yes, sir, I am. But, but at, at the same time, I mean, it is, it is a powerful argument. And even those who are rapidly against monasticism come to still accept this position. So it is going to be a powerful position. And of course, I accept it because John Wesley and John Calvin accept the doctrine. <laughs> and and so that seals joking, it for me. Joking, not joking. Yeah. <laughs> Zelwyn, is there any way to track when listeners stop listening to a given episode? <laughs> anyway, the point being, I don't think it can be so easily brushed off either. And and just just the same as I don't think that possibly an ascetic lifestyle can be brushed off easier. It's not ideal, and you can make the case that a life of pure monastic asceticism isn't godly, and yet there is still this very long precedent for it. So it is it is worth a debate. Now, here's the thing, though. 
we have always made room in the Lutheran Church for both positions. Right, right. It didn't, it didn't come out in the confessional age simply because it really wasn't a question. But I don't know that you could have ever said it was a central doctrine because it doesn't change who Christ is if you take it away, for example. No. But even, but yeah, we've left room open for both. And it's odd that it keeps coming up, that doctrine in particular. We're not debating, you know, any other thing quite like we are this for for some reason. It keeps coming up in our, in our armchair discussion. I think, I think the reason why the question keeps coming up is perhaps a, a function of our approach towards authority. Because we see these authorities in the past holding this position, therefore we have to consider it based on that authority. When we recognize full well throughout the whole discussion that this is an opinion which you can have one way or another. So the question is, is how do we deal with those kinds of authorities? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think dismissiveness is obviously the wrong opinion, but the idea that the fathers cannot err and they and that they could not possibly even err for generations and generations and something. See, here's the thing about the fathers: we love them, we honor them, but we have to admit that they contradict. And you can play all kinds of word games that you want and, and semantic games with this, but they do plainly contradict each other in certain parts. So, what do you do with that? You can't recover and try to make them into some kind of book of concord believing Lutherans either. That's just not the fact of the church fathers. Even the term church fathers is a pretty broad category. Yeah, it's very broad. And and when someone says the church fathers or the early church, your first question should always be which father whose church? Because generally when people are looking for authorities, they are looking for an undifferentiated non-complex authority, and the fathers will not offer you that. The Holy Spirit in Scripture will, but the fathers will not. And I guess when I was saying fathers, I'm even thinking like peeper, because when you go back in history, you can find many different opinions on many different subjects, and the final judge, as the formula of Concord mentions in all these controversies, is either Scripture or it's nothing. And would you say this is a—see, you would—well, I want to put words in your mouth, but would you say that this is an argument on which Scripture is silent? It is at least silent. I, I actually think that the uterine brothers of Jesus are, you know, there's there's at least four of them. <laughs> and there are sisters as well, because there's there are plural sisters who are looking for him in the Gospels. I, I, I don't see why a normal family life after the birth of our Lord is something that is shameful or or wrong. I think that Again, I, I think the motivation to make Mary distinct from the rest of the human race is always an impulse that comes out of the exaltation of monasticism over other forms of, of life within the church. Not that monasticism is always wrong, but it is a desire to exalt monasticism over other forms. All right, I'm going to stop you there. We're going to take a break now that we've lost the miter and maniple audience. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. The Word of God is the center of our faith life. 
Join us every Thursday for a new podcast available on iTunes and your favorite podcasting app. Follow us on Twitter at WordFitly. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash WordFitly. And check out our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. We thank you for listening and stay tuned for more WordFitly Spoken. This is a word fitly spoken. The whole crew is here talking anything and everything on the 50th episode. Well, that was a fun discussion about Simper Virgo, Deacons, all that stuff. I'm sure we'll get some fun letters and comments from that. Let's take a lighter track. And I want to know, what are you guys reading? In particular, not so much what you're reading right now, because that's going to change, but who are, let's say, the theologians and the historians that you go back to, and you can't say Luther? So anybody but Luther, just to make it fun, who do you like to read? Can I just say to start off with that I hear the phrase deep dive used for us by a variety of parties, like what we do at Word Fitly Spoken is a deep dive. I would just describe it as concentrating. The notion of the deep dive, I think, is one that people use simply because a lot of people... I sincerely believe do not really read anymore when they are doing something that they think of as reading, you know, kind of like looking over a text, they are skimming probably such that the kind of, you know, integration that should happen when you're learning doesn't happen for a lot of people. So any coverage of a subject in anything other than a 20 second answer sounds super in depth to somebody. I think you notice this when when people are asked a question and then they say, well, really briefly, or or they'll apologize for asking a question by saying just a quick question, as if any question or any answer longer than 10 seconds on either side is somehow too much. So I think I think like just before we talk about books, we should say that unless you are reading first the Bible and then other other good profitable theology besides that it's really kind of hard to integrate all the things that the lord has to teach you into your life simply because you're just kind of a lot of people i i think honestly are just kind of like on the internet gathering really basic ideas to which they react very quickly and leaving it at that both what we talk about and the length at which we discuss it is designed to push you in the direction of greater concentration and reflection. So I just, I just, I've been thinking about that because I, I think about the length at which we talk about Mormonism or pastoral theology or the Tennessee Senate or whatever. The reason we do that is partly because we think that topics that are worthwhile deserve actual investment of time rather than, you know, just kind of real quick. Here's what I think about this one issue. Boom, now we're done. Yeah, very well said, and I wholeheartedly agree. And that's what we go with. And that is harder and harder to do, you know, just given the the way people receive data, I guess we'll say. Yeah, right. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, I think I think the way we consume media is at least as important as what we're consuming. Like like when Zellner was talking about reading the Bible, if you if you pray before you read the Bible and you pray when you're done reading, it is a totally different experience than if you open it up and just glance at, oh, here's my verse for the day or oh, here's the verse that my Bible app gave me on my phone. Okay, I did my devotion, you know. The method by which you consume information is actually really important. If you give yourself time to read something thoroughly, to reflect on it, it it's going to do a lot more for you than if you're just looking to gather a new opinion or support for some opinion you already hold. Yeah, well said. Zalwin, do you have anything that you want to say about that? Because I, I think that as somebody who binds books, you have, you have, <laughs> you have some interest in this topic. That's Heidi Book Binding and Repair. Find them on Facebook. Yeah, they're great. I think that's very well put. And actually, it kind of made me think a little bit about, too, something that I was actually going to bring up is that because of the way that we consume things, as opposed to really, you know, wrestling with them or digesting them or working through them, we all kind of struggle with this sometimes when we just kind of shut off and, you know, mindlessly surf memes or something like that. Always time for memes. Let's not denigrate the meme and the meme magic. On the series of tubes. Yeah, we're surfing the memes. Yeah, Yeah, basically, basically. Right, essentially. (laughs) Hello, fellow kids. (laughs) Fellow young people. Zalwin is actually 8,000 years old. Don't make fun of him. Please go ahead. (laughs) I am Methuselah. But but I mean, it it comes down to like the, the thing that I struggle with the most is that the way that we consume things leads to a quick, like you said, a quick kind of approach, like just reacting to things, which means that we no longer have like a historical understanding. And this is something that I find to be kind of a little frustrating, honestly, because we tend to just react to something that's happening in history rather than actually working through it and thinking about, you know, why does this happen the way that it does? Yeah. So that, and we've talked about this before, if you approach certain subjects only to use them as kind of boogeyman's or some kind of like scare tactic, like you know, pietism is something that comes up very often and is kind of used as an abusive term. It's often done without really wrestling with what was happening and why it was happening. Right. And I think I think that's very important to consider when we approach questions, even in the Bible. We don't want to just react to the Bible. We want to digest it. We want to chew on it. We want to actually reflect on it, you know, meditate on it even, and think about what it is that's actually being said. Yeah. If you think about a term like pietism, if people have no idea what was what was occurring in the state churches in which pietism arose, mm-hmm. they will go with whatever they think that word means and just run with it. And it's very easy to do that when your primary source for consuming, you know, as Willie said, data is the Internet. And so this is not so much like a Luddite critique as it is to say that if you do if you are not given time to think about things time to reflect on them silence also visual silence then you're not going to be able to take things in and inwardly digest them the way that you should i mean i, I think that to willie's original question about you know a, a theologian or a book or something a theologian who's been helpful to me both in my pastoral practice and academic research is an Anglican missionary from the early 20th century named Roland Allen, 
who wrote a couple of books, the first of which and most famous of which is Missionary Methods, St. Paul's or Ours, in which he suggests that the whole way that the missionary enterprise was being carried on in the 19th and 20th century by Western missionaries was fundamentally unbiblical. You can agree or disagree with that. He expanded on it in Spontaneous Expansion of the Church. And then there's there's other essays he wrote, which are collected as a volume called The Ministry of the Spirit. What you should give him credit for is the capacity to reflect very deeply on whether or not what he's doing is wrong in some really basic way. I think in order to do that, whether you're talking about pastoral practice in that case or one's own life, one's own sins, one's own predilections, habits, prejudices, all that sort of thing. When you reflect, you you need time and you need space to think. And if your mind is constantly engaged in the consumption, if you're you're always, as the kids say, surfing the memes, then (laughs) then you you you, you just don't have the time or the space or the quiet to do that reflection, which will make you mature in Christ. You just, you cannot mature in Christ no matter how much you know, or no matter how great the side is that you have taken in some debate, if you do not have the capacity for reflection. And sometimes we think like, oh, well, you know, little kids don't have capacity for reflection, but adults do. But if a little kid has some basic knowledge of Christ and has time, he's going to more profitably reflect on the things of God than an adult who is constantly distracting himself. And I think that, to me, that's one of the greatest dangers, I think, for our churches is the the massive amount of distraction that occurs in them, part of which is technologically induced. It's just another case of you have to discipline yourself and you have to orientate yourself, orient yourself to this and make yourself approach subjects in this way. And we are so conditioned, as you say, by media and by the means by which it's transmitted that that actually is a difficult thing to do. It's hard to think in a different way. It's hard to process. It's hard to be patient and do the due diligence that this requires. So it's not something that you'll be able to do immediately. It's going to take work. It's like exercise. It's like anything. You know, it's work worth doing, but it is work and it's going to be hard work in some ways, but all the more rewarding because of that. Nothing in life worth it is easy. I'd love to hear from David and Aaron on this, but before before that, just pointing out too, a reflecting can also occur with people that we might actually have a fundamental disagreement with. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that is probably the most dangerous about this kind of tech- technological way we process things is that we tend to get caught in these kind of loops where we're just kind of reinforcing these ideas that may or may not have a basis in reality. Mm -hmm. And I mean, so like if somebody uses, and going back to those historical terms again, using a term like pietism or using a term like the reformed, and to imagine that everybody just kind of knows what that means, can be a little bit disingenuous. I mean, because are we actually dealing with primary sources? Are we actually dealing with the words of what these people actually say? Or are we dealing with the words of what somebody told us about them? I think that if you apply that not only to debates on the internet, but to the issue of, you know, dealing with things in your life that way, 
what I often find is that people are unacquainted with their spouses. They're unacquainted with their kids. And that's probably because they are also unacquainted with themselves, simply because they do not give any of those things time to speak on their own. Not that everything that you say or think is good, but that you need to understand what your own thoughts and inclinations are in order to either repent of them or encourage them to see them in light of Christ. Yeah, that's actually well said. Being insular and being so focused on your own entertainment or your own screen or whatever is not the same thing as being in touch with who you actually are, be it sinner, saint, or both. You're not going to do the diagnostic necessary to see your sins, to see where you need to repent, and you're certainly not going to be able to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in that way, simply because, once again, insular doesn't mean actually in tune with reality, even the reality of yourself. So that that is very well said. A lot of times this, this isolation that we feel really just means we're alone and we're focused on something else. And, and often something not profitable. Not that there aren't times for recreation and for silly stuff and frivolity. I think you could make the case for that. But the pursuit of mere entertainment, the pursuit of sport over and against the greater things and the greater one is probably the great ill of our day. And everything can be traced, traced back to that. Some form of self-gratification, but that doesn't really tell you anything about yourself other than you're being pulled by that external force, which is playing upon your your fallen nature. And so the only way to become aware of that is to be taught. How can we be taught? Well, we go to the places where we might learn. And often it's a classroom or a church classroom, in particular the pulpit. But two, it's in your own libraries as well, and your own collections, your own endeavors. So, but I just really like the way you put that, Adam. So I want to give the other guys a couple chance, some chance to chime in on this. Uh, David, any comments? Well, I, I'm going to tell a story here from back in the, the seminary days. I can remember, I think, I, I don't remember exactly what the genesis of the conversation was, but I was talking with Adam once and I was saying this desire to have, or, or the inability for us to to reflect on things and to concentrate for extended periods of time. It comes out in different ways. In the seminary, it was often guy raises his hand and says, is this going to be on the test, right? Is this going to be on the test? Uh So like, well, what we really need to know is just what has immediate practical value, right? I can remember telling Adam, I I hate all practical things. I'm never going to teach a practical (laughs) class. And he looked at me and he goes, well, you're going to be a great pastor. (laughs) And he just laughed, right? (laughs) Which is, you know, point well taken. That I think connected with this, we're we're so distracted that we can't concentrate. And then we we want the immediate answer. This goes all the way back to what we were talking about in the first segment here with the way that you read the Bible. If you're looking for that immediate, okay, I have this problem with my husband or with my wife, and what does the Bible say about it immediately right now? You're going to be hard-pressed to find that in the Bible. You might... You might find like some particular proverb that fits just your situation, but the Bible was not written for, you know, what do I need to do on Tuesday afternoon, July 14th, right? There's a, but there is to know the mind of Christ that is practical, but it's not immediately practical, right? And so that this concentration thing, 
it's a good point and it's well it's it's well said. Aaron, sure, I'm still here. What I would add to this would be uh, just simply from my own experience to to put it out there a little bit. I started seminary when we all started seminary back about nine years ago or so. I was not very good at reading. I mean, I could read, but it was hard to concentrate and to learn. And it comes, you know, partially from just, you know, growing up in a media saturated entertainment age. My favorite book to recommend people that's not theological is Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, because it's a good diagnostic for why many people kind of find themselves uh, wanting to learn about a subject, you know, in our case, theology, but not really having the the tools in and of themselves to, to do it well, because our attention spans are very short and have been conditioned to be so. And so, like, I, again, I, great stuff. I've been kind of listening to this as if it's just one of the podcasts I listen to, forgetting that I'm a participant in it tonight, because it's great stuff that <laughs> it's, it's helpful, you know, especially Adam's thing he just said a little bit ago, because, you know, this is important enough to where, I mean, it's, it's the most important thing in the world. And so it shouldn't be undertaken lightly you to, to just read kind of mindlessly like it's an article, you know, in Sky Mall on the plane or something like that. But you want to to read it and meditate on it and to be able to think and have thoughts about it. And and it's it's speaking, you know, as myself, it's it's been an uphill battle, but something that if you cut out the things, the various things and glowing rectangles in your life, which make it difficult and you do put in the time and the energy and just the deliberate action to to read and get better at reading and understanding and learning, it does get better. So for anybody out there that can resonate more with me in that regard, I, I hope that this podcast and what we're saying here tonight especially is helpful to you. Good stuff. All right, guys. So last few minutes, I'm going to make you recommend more books. All right, especially in light of this. Good, meaty books that you can concentrate on. Adam, we already got your one, Paul's Missionary Philosophy. David, do you have any you'd like to recommend? I mean, I read a, a lot of different things, but one thing I, I keep coming back to is a book called Biblical Theology by Gerhardus Voss, who was a, a Presbyterian, I think he was a professor at Princeton, might have that wrong, but I think that's right, back in the early 20th century. Yeah, you're right. You're right. The reason I like the book, he, he does not go through like specific passages, but the way that, that he's able to illuminate the Bible and and certain themes that then when I read the Bible, it's like, yeah, this is this was there all along. How did I not see this before? And he especially his sections on the Old Testament, I find incredibly helpful just in my own understanding of the Old Testament. Zolan. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to pick anything in particular. I mean, because like, like these guys have been saying, you, you read all kinds of things. Something I've been dealing with a lot more lately, since I have a, a, a deep abiding interest in history, has been the Puritans, actually, and trying to get a better understanding of what made them tick and you know what kind of things you could gain from them, you could glean from them. One thing I've profited immensely from them is their intense organization. And anyone who's read any of the Puritans, I think, would understand, you know, what I'm talking about, how they're able to so handle a text and to present it so clearly in a way that is yet so intensely practical and personable is really quite an amazing feat. And I mean, obviously, we don't agree with everything that they say. But at the same time, understanding them better has been uh, very, very fruitful and very profitable for me. Who, who do you mean by the Puritans, Zalwin? Give me a name. One I've been really enjoying a lot lately is a Thomas Watson. Willie, do you want to say anything about him? 
No, Watson's good. Richard Sibbs, Bruised Reed is always a great one to go to. For the pastor especially, Perkins, The Art of Prophesying, I think it has a lot of good practical homiletical advice. Um, there's just a lot of of good stuff there, as long as you don't, you know, treat the Puritans like they're boogeymen, as, right. as Elwin kind of said earlier, like it's not intended to be. They're very important for American history, too. And one of the advantages for most of our audience is that they're, they're all primary sources and in English. Right. So you can access some very significant historic documents in, a, in your native language, which is great. Get into their heads, see what made them tick. You, you'll find a lot there that'll surprise you. You know, the word Puritan in, in the broader English context is akin to our pietist in the narrow Lutheran context where we, where we use it as some kind of stuffy, rather legalistic person. You know, oh, these puritanical laws that outlawed booze or something like that, which is not something the Puritans ever did. Read a Puritan writing on marital love, for example, you'll get a completely different picture of them. Again, doesn't mean we're endorsing everything that they say, but it's much better to be able to see people, and especially theologians, for who they are and what they actually say. That's that's exactly my point, is that it's not enough to say, oh, Puritans, pshah, who cares? They're Puritans, we already know everything about them, but rather to engage them and to actually say, at least be able to say, I still disagree with them, but this is why. And this is right. what they say, you know, so to at least have that kind of familiarity. Yeah, absolutely. Well, guys, we're coming up on time. Any final words before we sign off? I think I think we're we're maybe a little surprised that we made it this far. And I just want to thank the listeners for tuning in and for, I think, going along the different paths that we've explored with us. I think we have a lot of good stuff coming up, probably a lot more about assorted cult leaders of 19th century America. <laughs> I think you're going to enjoy the next 50 as much as we've enjoyed the first 50. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken, number 50. If you like what you heard, want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. God love you, and God bless. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word. But as man of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ.